name's Peter Knight and I want to thank you for listening into this podcast. Today I'm speaking with world-renowned Australian golf coach Dale Lynch. Among his successes, he coached a young Aaron Badley to two Australian Open wins and Jeff Ogilvie to a US Open major championship. Listen as Dale talks about the art and science of golf coaching and the need for both. Later in the podcast, he has some great advice for parents based on his own experiences of being a coach, father and caddy to his son Ryan. If you enjoy the chat with Dale, then go to iTunes, look up Iron Golf Mind, then subscribe to the podcast series. That way you won't miss any. You can also download and catch up on past interviews. If you find you're getting some great information, and of course you will, then please tell your friends. I began the chat with Dale by asking him how he became a father of six children with the amount of time he spends overseas each year. I know you spend a lot of time overseas, but you've, you've got a lot of kids. How did that happen? <laughs> um, yeah, very true. Well, actually, I thought when I first started going overseas that we probably had enough kids, but we still managed to get a couple more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so six in total. So keep uh, and, and sometimes I don't know who who take more looking after the kids or sometimes some of the players. <laughs> I thought you're going to talk about you. <laughs> what I am interested in is, you know, you've forged a reputation as as one of the best coaches in the world over quite a period of time, and these things don't happen quickly. So, what's what's the background? How did you get involved with golf, and how did you get involved with coaching? Um, yeah, good question. The coaching was a, um, I'd say, an accident to some degree. It was, was never a, um, it was never actually a goal to to coach per se. It was was <clears throat> like a lot of players. I, I played professionally and and uh, back in the day became uh, extremely frustrated at uh, my lack of being able to improve and certainly the lack of being able to eliminate uh, the poor shots that would come under pressure. Uh, and it was a constant battle, and I, I stopped playing. You know, my goal as a player finished, as I knew that it was where I wanted to go. Was I was never going to achieve it. Um, so then got into just really looking at the golf swing per se, um, and it wasn't necessarily to look at it in terms of the tees, but just to look at it in terms of how it worked. Because I, I really felt that a lot of information that I was getting uh, wasn't accurate uh, and wasn't right. Um, and so really from that point, um, then obviously you're still involved with people in golf, and so I started then doing some work with you know, some of the better players, even at that point in time in pros, and starting getting results. And I was certainly doing things very, very different than what was done in mainstream. I mean, I, I then got into teaching then, and I guess early days I had a reputation of being a bit of a, a maverick and a, and a nut job because I was doing things very, very differently. Um, isn't, isn't it really interesting, just to sort of backtrack a tiny bit, you found that there was there were gaps. There were gaps in the knowledge that you had about your own game, and in order to try and fill in those gaps, you went down the coaching path. Yeah, so, and I guess I went down the coaching path because it, it, it sort of it was sort of as I said, searching for what I thought how it worked, and then that sort of led me into coaching, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, and then yeah, started to get good results. But you're often it's a case, and it's it's like the failed player. Uh, makes as a coach, and I guess sometimes you uh, you tend to learn a lot by by not making it, and, and what's uh, what's required. And often the people that do make it really don't know what it is that they do. So 
Uh, I think sometimes sometimes when you put the coaching banner on, I think that works in in a lot of sporting activities too, not just golf, but the, it's it's the guy that's that battles that is forced to to really uh, expand his knowledge. Uh, is often uh, often a more successful coach than the super talented person that things come to very very naturally and very very easily. Yeah, I love the idea of you being the maverick coach. What what was the maverick in you? What made you a maverick that was different to what other people were doing? Uh, well, I, I guess now I'm going to show my age, but back back in the day, it was all very very much. I mean, it was the theory was on what people perceived Jack Nicklaus to do: keep the head straight keep the left arm straight, pull down the left arm, swing the club into out and roll the wrists and get your divots going to the right. Combine that with driving the legs. And and really from that point, it's really a matter of actually looking at it and saying, well, that's really not what's going on. So it was really for people to get behind the ball in some ways and, and um, allow their weight to move, uh, let the club actually swing left on the through swing, make it a more right-sided type movement, uh, allow the left arm to be um, to be passive, and the divot's actually working left to get the ball to draw rather than actually you know, swing to the right. So it, that's there was another other thing that I think that probably was the, the general theme back then when we were playing. That's how we were, we were coached. But I think that the guys that actually made it then made it through not listening to what they told rather than actually doing what they told. Because if you actually do those things, then you, you're not going to be successful because it's, it's an ineffective way of doing it. <laughs> It's an interesting way of looking at it that you actually get better as long as you don't listen. Yeah, and and I think you you would be the same too that there are players that you know didn't take any notice that became good players because they did what made the ball go where they wanted it to go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, not trying to not trying to do it as I was told to do. How do you feel your coaching's evolved over time? Because the technology that's available to us now is dramatically different to what it was, you know, 30 years ago. Yes, that's true, and I suppose we went. I mean, even I remember when we first started teaching with the video camera, the big box with a full VCR stuck in it. Uh, the only thing way to turn trying to work that around, slip it in a VCR and connect it to a TV. Um, and the, I think the video was uh, was a big help. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I guess the technology is an interesting one because if people, in a lot of cases, the advent was a wonderful tool, but. Again, it created its own problems where the people didn't really know how to use it properly and didn't know how to, I guess, understand and maximise information that the video camera was getting. Because, again, it's, it gets back to what the golf ball's doing and, and then looking at the video camera and information in there and matching that up with, with what you're sitting out in front of you. And um, It's interesting. I suppose now that you know, TrackMan is, the, is obviously the big uh, scientific move forward that players and coaches are using. Um, but I remember actually... Going back, we had, uh, and again, getting back to that, that swing into out stuff, that I actually had what was called a golf tech computer at, um, uh, when we set up at, at Golf City. So we had a, one of the first video set of the TCRs. We had this computer that was connected to a big box TV. I still remember it. Um, and it actually gave out things like uh, swing direction, path the club, the contact point, the miles per hour. Uh, it, did, it actually gave out a lot that TrackMan is now doing. And we had that set up because to get people out of the, the misconception that to move the ball right to left, you had to swing the club from inside to out. Um, so that was why going way, way back then that we actually used that type of technology um, and said, now, you know, you're right, TrackMan and this sort of the uh, 3D stuff. And, and again, I, I suppose the, the, the key as a, as a coach is to be able to utilise those tools what science gives you. But I, I still think it's very important that the game remains an art 
And I think, I guess even the, the things like, you know, I use Sam Putt Lab, there's a couple of others like Tommy and, and whatnot that actually measure things with the putting stroke and contact and roll the ball and et cetera, et cetera. But my feeling is that we, we, we need to use those as a coach, but uh, there's still, it, it's still a tool. It's still, in a putting situation, it's still the roll of the ball and getting the person to understand how the ball rolls, what makes it roll, and then utilising the um, utilizing information that, um, let's say, a sandpart lab may give you. But not that the sandpart lab is the is the controlling factor. It's just there as a as a backup tool to let you know what what is actually going on. There's still you know basic principles of, of how the ball should roll and what makes the ball roll and what makes it roll effectively. I love the idea of thinking of you know coaching and playing as an art. And being an art, it's sort of it's it's almost like it's the opposite of a science. Science you know has numbers and you can measure things and all the rest of it, which you can do with that technology. But the difference that making uh, when a, when a coach treats golf and treats coaching as an art form, that is what separates the good coaches from the best coaches. So, how do you see working with a player from from that perspective? Um, that, that's a good question, and and really, it's a um, the, the coaching. You know, talking good players, it's a two way street. Uh, in as much as the coach will actually learn as much than in reverse. Uh, and, and what I mean by that answer is that to coach a player, you need to understand them first. You need to understand what makes them work, what works for them, and, and how they actually function. And so, therefore, you then have to adapt your coaching style to match that person's personality. Um, and I, I often will use, a, say, a Jeff Ogwe, for instance, now, he's very, very artistic, very, very creative type player. Uh, and, and Aaron Badley, at, at a, you know, a young age, uh, very analytical, loved the science of it, um, was like your perfect model as far as a coach goes because you could map everything out, you could measure everything, blah, blah, blah. But you couldn't possibly coach Jeff Ogilvy in that same vein because he's just so creative. He needs to learn by ball flight. He reacts. It's by feel. He's got to keep mechanics right out of his head develop his game in a very, very different manner than you would say Aaron Badley. And there's lots of players that, that, that trend in that area and, and, and some in between. So that becomes the art of the, the coach. And so the, the best thing you can do as a coach is, is actually listen rather than, rather than the talk because the listening tells you a lot more than what the talk does. So you're listening to what the player has to say? Listen to what the player has to say, discuss their past experiences, what worked, what hasn't worked, why they've been successful. Um, there's a reason, that, you know, if we're talking now that you're talking working with uh, elite-ish, maybe elite's not the right, but, you know, high-level players, and that can be, you know, it might be a talented young kid at, you know, 16 years of age to someone that may be working their way on tour. I mean, they've got there because they have done things, they've got there because they've done things that are right for them. And so, therefore, when you're developing that player's game, and improving it, you need to develop and improve it along the same lines as what how they actually how they actually got there. In your descriptions of say working with Jeff Ogilvy and, and working with Aaron Badley, it seems like they're at the opposite ends of the spectrum from the person who who wants the numbers, who wants the science, and and someone who who's who's the opposite of that, who who yeah. doesn't want those things. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Uh, and sometimes what happens too, and again, Gil, there's some players that want that information, but you know that that information is not going to be helpful to them. They, they will trend, tend to get away from, from things that they need to do in order to, be, to develop their game and be successful. They can, some players can very easily get caught up in, in the mechanics 
when they need to be more on the on the on the art side and developing it more from from that perspective. So what I'm hearing from you is that you're very attuned to the player and what they actually need, which I think is part of the art form of coaching. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I, I, I would give I would give a um, an example would be, and again we use players that we know, say Craig Spence. Craig, um, very very talented, probably the straightest driver of the ball of anyone I've worked with. Made his way on the PGA Tour, been a at a young age, and he had a, he had top five finishes in in every on the main tour, every main tour in the world that year. Quite exceptional. And he was he was brought up in in country Victoria, so no driving ranges or anything like that at all. So all his golf was developed through you know hooking around trees, under trees, hitting out of bad lies, uphill slope down, you know, all that creative stuff. And he was as creative a player as that I'd come across. And his ability to do things with the golf ball in in creative situations was just phenomenal. So his feel and awareness of what he was doing from that end was just terrific. You then put him in an environment in the United States. We moved over there. So he moves over to a place in uh, Arizona. Of course, in the States, as you get brand-new range balls, the driving ranges are dead flat, great facilities to work at, everyone else is out there uh, hitting balls. So the player will tend to think, well, this is what I need to do to get better. So they finish up very, very quickly uh, becoming range rats. Then they play on a golf course, courses in Arizona that really don't have any trees or very quite flat. Um, the creativity starts to disappear. So someone like Craig, is that that's his worst environment. And then what happens in that situation, their form will start to drop off. They head back to the reins. They start thinking mechanics, working on mechanics. Their actual mind and their mindset gets in a very different area than where it ought to be to, for them to be, uh, you know, really great players. And they find that they really start digging a hole for themselves in that in that type of environment because it's so different than how he uh, developed his game. Not, you know, Craig might now... He's now in the coaching field. We talk about that, uh, you know, quite a deal that he would change a number of things. If it's just the environment, the environment was so different and stopped him from developing his game in, in that natural creative art form that uh, that made him such a you know wonderful player. Yeah, these are all great learnings as we go along, and and I'm sure, and, and I really want value your opinion on it. That I think the players teach us as much about how to go about coaching as what we can teach the players. Oh, most definitely. Look, I think you know you asked the question. I think, Almost at the beginning was it, you know, like, you know, how have you, how have you managed, you know, on the journey to, to get to, to where I am? And it is that you actually, you, you learn from the players. You absolutely do because you, you take their experiences and what's worked and how they go about it and what they've done. And it, it, the more that it just keeps building your own, your own repertoire by knowing what, what has been successful for different. And it's not one size fits all by long, long stretch. And that's why what we, what we do as coaches is what players do. You, you, can, you just keep get you can just keep getting better, providing you're willing to keep learning. Can you think of anything, any of the learnings that have sort of been, you know, aha moments for you along the road? Sometimes aha moments a bit like there's certainly times when when I've been teaching, and, and, and I'm, you know, I'll use a Jeff because it's in that sort of creative field where uh, that all of a sudden I, I've said something. And instantly it's worked. Mm. And sometimes I walk away and I say, how do I think of that? You know, what made me actually think to do that? And I guess along the way there's been those sort of, I suppose the, the, the ahas is a bit like, well, what made me actually think of that? Because it wasn't anything that came that was in a, uh, an analytical uh, scientific form at all. It was something that was just, just instinctive that, it, that oh, okay, well, this will work. So I think that, for me, from a coaching perspective, is something that I've, that I've found at different times working with different players. I love that idea about instinct because, 
you sort of hear a lot about, you know, creativity and instinctiveness in coaching, but you don't have that when you first start coaching. And it's only after years of experience across a range of things that all of a sudden you start to, you know, draw strands of experience from a whole range of things and you come up with some new way or some slightly different way of putting them together. And then you think, where did that come from? But in fact, it's, it's been based in, you know, a lot of years of yeah. work. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's just, it just becomes layers. And you're exactly right. Is that yeah, you can't become a good coach straight away because, yeah, as I said, you just don't have that. You don't have that experience to, to draw from it. it. Again, it's like, um, I suppose in my early days, I used to really like to work on those really difficult lessons. I'm like the really tough ones to fix, the tough pupils, because I figured that once I found a way to fix that problem, it would it would further my coaching very, very quickly because it would add another string to my bow. So very early, I, I really looked at, at, at trying hard to to get on top of the, um, the, the that difficult that difficult swing fix or that difficult climb. There's a, a lot of uh, young coaches who come through as professionals and they have aspirations to coach, and a lot of them say, "What I really want to do is I want to coach really good players at tour level." So. <laughs> Recognising that does take a long time, what advice would you give to a young coach who has those aspirations? The advice is just keep learning. Just keep learning, be open-minded, uh, never be closed-minded. Follow with a passion and keep listening. And listen to other coaches, watch other coaches, but just as importantly is listen to players. Uh, listen to what players do, what players, uh, what made the players successful. I would say that I think that's, I don't think I'm talking out of school, but that's one thing I find interesting because I've lived in the States for a while and I've done a fair bit of travel over there, that we have so many successful players, a lot of elite programs in place, and yet no one is actually really sourcing out our successful players to ask them questions as to how they did it. I find that fascinating, particularly as we're talking now, because the opportunity to learn from those players that are successful, and they'd be more than happy to, to help, and yet we have we have programs in place that have been put in place in, in a certain way, which which is terrific, but they would be better if they, if they actually asked the guys that were successful as to how they went about it, because it gets under the topic just what you and I are talking about now, because they'll, they'll give you a different story. That's so true. It, it just reminded me of some comments made by Neil Craig in a, in a previous podcast. Neil's now working with Essendon Football Club and he was working with some of the others. But we talked about a high-performance environment and he actually said that he doesn't use that term. He talks about a high-performing environment. And the difference between the two is that a high-performance environment says, you know, we have the infrastructure, we have the sports science capabilities which will help our players. But it doesn't necessarily imply that the athlete is going to get better, whether it's a high-performing environment says that everything we do is about the athlete getting better and, and unless they get better, then we haven't got a high-performing environment. And it's the same sort of thing with what you're talking about with the coaches is, you know, find out what them makes good instead of thinking, well, we actually know what makes them good. And yeah. maybe, maybe you don't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's that they have, uh, they have access to, you know, wealth of world-class people. And rather than reinventing the wheel, you just keep adding to it, and you add you add their experiences to what you know, so that it will benefit somebody else. Because 
you know, there may be a, a, another Stuart Apple who comes along the way or a, a Robert Allenby or a Jeff Ogilvy or whoever it may be. And so if you already have pathways uh, of what worked for them, could greatly assist uh, another young kid on the way through. You're doing a lot more coaching at Yarra Bend Golf Course in Melbourne now. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you, you've said to me is that the thing that you really enjoy is actually working with a young player and helping to develop them through. So as a, a broad thing, we've got a, there's a young player who has aspirations of turning professional, and, of course, we know that there's, there's, <laughs> there's no shortage of them. Yeah. So what advice for those young players? What should they look to do in order to you know, help themselves along that long career path? Yeah, um, I, it's for me the key is for them to continue to learn and use every experience as an opportunity to learn from. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when they're playing in a, a, a junior tournament, is that it's not so much about winning the tournament; it's about learning. It's about about becoming a better player through what you've learned at that event. And that may be for some players not performing very well. They, they may not perform very well, and by figuring out why they actually, again, help their foundation become that, that better player. Um, it's really about about learning, continuing to learn, continuing trying to get better. And the other thing is to be honest in yourself in terms of your work ethic, be honest to yourself in terms of what you're, what you're trying to do in the tournament, be honest to yourself in terms of where your game really is. And I'm sure you've, you've found it too, Pete, where you get kids that are really talented, uh, the expectation both external and internal, is, is very, very high. And when they're not performing, they then start looking for other things. In that case, they actually stop being honest with themselves. If they're not honest with themselves, then from a coaching perspective, you can't help them. Yeah, so there's clearly a, a different role here, aside from the technical stuff. We've talked a little bit about knowing the player and listening to the player. But there's also really helping to nurture them from a you know mental emotional standpoint, and part of that is the honesty. So when things don't go so well, and, and you're working with a player who's struggling a little bit, what sort of interventions, what sort of conversations do you have with those players? It would vary between players. Um, each person will be different. But again, it's it's getting it's it's getting them to assess where they're at. Uh, getting them to assess what is really going, what is really going wrong, and you know, why is this not working? You know, if your practice form is good and yet your competitive form um, isn't good, why is that the case? You know, what are you doing in practice? Are you actually practicing as plans we put in place, or are you taking shortcuts? Um, are you in a situation where you are getting nervous and you're not only up to getting nervous and you're not dealing with it if it becomes a, a mental issue that you need to? Um, things are you getting situations the obvious one with golf with most kids that, that tendency with golf the great challenge is getting ahead of yourself for instance where you, know, you start thinking about your victory speech after six holes you've got to have a good start um, just really a, a discussion with them on where they're at what they're thinking how it works and again finding out from them what they're what they're actually experiencing and as I said that's really where the honesty of, from the players perspective the players honest the job as a coach is very very easy and you've had tremendous success and, uh, you know, the highlights are uh, uh, probably the two Australian Opens with Aaron Badley and, and certainly more recently with Jeff Ogilvy winning the US Open. So that experience of a player winning a major championship and I'm guessing from memory there are probably about 11 Australians that have won at least one major championship. So it's only a small group. Yeah. What does it take from a player to be able to cope with those pressures 
Oh, that's a that's that's a really good question. It again depends on the player's personality. Um, if they've got um, some players have higher egos than others, and then when they've won a major and they're very ego driven, uh, that those extend uh, can have a negative effect. Uh, if you get someone like, and we use Jeff because obviously that was his his one that um, that the US Open, because of his personality, he's not he's, golf for him is is not ego driven, and he's always said the same thing about he just plays golf and tries to get better. So him winning a major didn't have... He actually played very good golf after that for quite a while. His WGC events would be a testament to that. And so his was, his was just... It was just an acceptance that it was part of what he was doing and it was a win, and he accepted that win and he just kept going down the same road. Uh, but we certainly know, you know, Dave DeVal, um, Mega Finch, uh, to name, you know, a couple, and there's, there's lots of them, that... The winning the mains is that the, that the the golf game then spirals out of control, uh, and often what happens in that environment is that they think they need to be a better player than they are. They think, well, okay, I've got a major now, I need to be better, I need to hit the ball further, I need to be able to do this, I need to be able to do that. And I guess you'd even use, I mean, Martin Klein would be an interesting one where you know he's such a great player, and then try to change his game because he thought he'd draw the ball to play well at Augusta and fell right out of five. It wasn't until he went back to fighting the ball, and of course. The rest is history there about as far as him winning the, the US Open. So it's just interesting that players can tend when they win to think they need to, need to be better and to do more, and they get away from doing the things that actually got them there in the first place. It's an interesting phenomenon with a lot of people who are successful, and I'm not just talking sport, where they have this eye. Uh, there's almost like this little voice says, are you really this good? You know, you really should do more. You're going to have to do more to stay where you are. And it's almost like everybody else will look at them and say, well, you are that good because you have performed well. You have won. So that search can lead them down some dark alleys at times. Yeah, uh, no question. Mm. But it is, it is it's a, and the different personalities will, will dictate the, the issues that are at hand there. So I'm really curious, you talked about Aaron Baddeley and, and Jeff Ogilvie being quite different in how they approach the game. I'm imagining that the conversations that you would have with with Jeff are going to be obviously quite different to what they would be with Aaron, but are they more about non-golf stuff as well? Generally not. Uh, probably Jeff will talk more more about golf, and I'm talking now later in his career. Jeff will talk more about preparation. Uh, I would talk more to Jeff on golf than than Aaron just in terms of Jeff looking at the game, how to prepare, how to get better, what makes me work, how do, how do I practice, what's the best way for me to go about it, and all those all those sorts of things. And the game itself, because he has such an incredible passion for the game. That's why he's very good at architecture. Him, you know, To walk a practice around with Jeff, uh, often it's, it's as much about the architecture and the course setup as it is about anything else. Whereas Aaron would be... Uh, said quite mechanical, quite swing orientated, and you could you could just determine right down. Okay, this is what you're going to do. This is a, this is what length of time you work in this particular drill. This is how you're going to go about your practice on your full swing. This is how you're going to go about your back. I could actually tell you exactly what Aaron would be doing on a day to day basis when I was working with him on exactly how he would practice and he would do it to the letter and would do that since he was like 14 years of age. And that, that from a coaching perspective makes the job really really easy. Um, because they're following a set plan, and as a coach, we like that's a very, very easy thing for us to do. Whereas Jeff, very, very different, um, always changing, looking at better ways, being creative, 
non-technical, wants to work in his golf swing, but in a non non-intrusive way, if you like. So, I mean, I guess I would, for an example, would be to shallow out his golf swing, he would just practice hitting balls off a tee. So for him, he doesn't think about mechanics, but his instinct would naturally figure out a way for that to, for that to work. So a lot of the stuff with Jeff changing his technique around was actually just creative stuff with with hitting the ball and forcing his body to change, not actually thinking about the change. So just very, very different personalities, very, very different individuals, and there's stacks of people that are are in between both those. Moving to now, you're still working uh, quite closely with Jeff, but also one of your sons, Ryan, he's playing golf professionally, and I see you working with him. Do you see a need to separate out the role of father and coach, or can you work those together? Yeah, look, that's that's an interesting one. We need to be aware that that sometimes dad isn't the best coach. We've seen enough of us in our jobs, for sure. So maybe having seen what goes on there from a a dad trying to coach and caddy, we we can learn things. Uh, But look, I'm aware that there there is a difference. And I suppose that that the relationship I have with Ryan, that, that the coaching role for me is a simple one. I do caddy for him at different times, and I'll be honest with you that the caddying as the dad is more of a challenge than the coaching. You know, and I think the dad caddying is a very, very short-term thing. And I think one of the reasons is that, the, that you know, when the, the player needs to be the boss, yes. uh, um, but it's very hard for the player to be the boss of their dad. <laughs> so I think the, I think the caddy the, the caddy portion of the father-son thing is the most challenging, uh, but the coaching thus far, but, and I'm, I've been aware of it all the way through, that if, it, if the dad sort of took over and, and the, the coaching wasn't effective, then you would be looking to for him to get coached elsewhere, but with our relationship's actually very, very good. That is such good advice. I hope there's a lot of parents listening. When you've got <laughs> someone like you who's one of the best coaches in the world who's making statements about the challenges of separate, separating those things out, and we've got lots of dads on the bag <laughs> who think they're really good coaches. <laughs> and worse caddies. And worse caddies, yeah. <laughs> From here, as you as you move forward and, and uh, again, as I said, you've made the statement, you're looking to, to develop players and move them through. How do you see that, that working over the next few years for you? I, sort of, I guess I, I won't say fluked upon it. It was, just, I mean, it was just a situation where young kids came to you with a dream and they were talented and you, you would just help them along that pathway uh, and build with them. So I, I don't have any set absolute framework. It's just a matter of just kids that want to get better that, you know, and you know what it's like, you, you develop a great relationship with, with the kids and just find that relationship and, and kids that are talented that want it. You know, I hope there's a, there's a, couple, there's a couple, of, couple of good kids come through the door that, um, that your rapport with them is really good and that's important from a coach too uh, and you have the opportunity of helping them through it because that, that, that's the most satisfying role and I'm sure you would agree with that is, is working with kids because the pathway with them for a longer period and your scope your scope from coaching is so much more you know it's a, it's such a long-term process that you're looking at and it's quite exciting as you're taking the player through those through those various steps and stages some go through it faster than others but it, it doesn't matter it's a great thing about golf um, you don't have to be great at you know 20 you can be great at 30 you know it doesn't it's just it's a um, I think it's just a great part of the, the, the game Exactly. And look, the good news for the parents or young players who who are looking for a fantastic coach, you are available and you can help them and you're at Yarra Bend so they can get in contact with you there. Yeah, no worries. Mm. 
Val, thanks for the thanks for the chat. There's some great information there. I love the variety that you have had and will continue to have with you know players having you know different expectations, learning differently, and then for you being able to adapt to that and then get brilliant results with them. Well yeah. Done. Okay, well, I want to speak.